Pastor Nick, our, our discipleship pastor, let's give him a warm welcome. And also George, our MIT there. George, just wave your hand to everybody. Welcome him. They're going to be sharing the message today on how to prepare for Pentecost. Pastor Nick. Thank you, Pastor Mark. I appreciate that. Morning, everybody. Uh, it's great to see you today. Um, I'd like to open this morning with a bit of a question to you all. Um, are you the kind of person who likes to be uh, kind of really, really well prepared for something uh, before it comes? Or are you the sort of person that's kind of, you're just easygoing, you want to go with the flow, you show up and whatever happens, happens? Like, I think we're kind of, you know, we're, we're split into those two camps, aren't we? Now, and also it depends pretty much on what, we, what we're going to go to. And I know for myself, for instance, that if I'm revising for an exam, I'm like mega prepared. I'm like really, really, really prepared. But if I'm going to go to a party, I just like, I prefer it actually to decide in five minutes that I'm going and then just go along, uh, which is kind of a bloke thing to do, isn't it? There's not, any women here can just go to a party in five minutes flat. No, there's no hands raised. I thought so. I think you need a bit of prep time, don't you ladies, to go to a party. Now, I'm not speaking on this uh, particular passage today, but... There's that tension between being really prepared and being spontaneous in a great story in John's Gospel uh, where uh, Jesus goes along to uh, a wedding uh, and and that story holds this intention. The master of the banquet must have done a lot of preparation for his wedding. You know, like weddings are those events that you do a lot of prep for, aren't they? You just do loads of prep for a wedding. And so the master of the banquet would have done loads and loads of preparation And yet, he still found himself caught short of decent wine. And then, in a kind of spur of the moment, spontaneous thing, Mary goes to Jesus and says, hey, can can you sort this out? And Jesus' ministry hasn't even started, but he does a favor to the wedding. And there's this lovely balance between loads of preparation on the one hand and this kind of open spontaneity on the other. And that's, in a sense, what we're going to talk about a little bit today. This morning, George and I are sharing a message between us which is called Preparing for Pentecost. Preparing for Pentecost. Now next Sunday, uh, as Sarah's already told us in the notice today, we are marking and celebrating Pentecost. And in the week following that, on the Monday night, the Tuesday night, the Wednesday night and the Thursday night, we are pressing deeper into Jesus and into what the Holy Spirit might have for us on each of those nights. And we would love it if you would make that like a big feature in your diary over these next couple of weeks, that you would come out to as many of those meetings as you can. Come out and be a part of that. Now, we want to offer you some wisdom in the run-up to that on how we might get ourselves ready for what God is going to be doing as BCC heads heads into a season of something special in God. So George and I got together, and uh, we kind of got up in the meeting room, and we read through Acts 1 and 2 together, Uh, and I want to suggest that there are three things to recognize from Acts chapter 1 and 2, and three ways in which which we ourselves can respond to what's going on uh, at the moment in our church. So three things to recognize, which I'm going to pick up and explore, and then three ways that we can respond, and George is going to take over from me and look at those. You know, as you go through Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, it's really striking how much fulfillment of prophecy goes on. There's a whole shed load of things that happen that are fulfillments of prophecies from before. So first of all, in Acts chapter 1, Peter talks about how the Holy Spirit predicted long ago what Judas would do. 
We don't often focus on that, do we? But it actually says that in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 2, Peter gives this great message to the crowd that's there, and he uh, talks about an outpouring of the Spirit that was first described by the prophet Joel. And then thirdly, Peter also talks about how the Messiah would come from the line of David. Three prophecies that are fulfilled in the approach to Pentecost right there. Now, we ourselves, we know if we go and look in the Word, for example, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel talks about God saying, I'm going to put a new heart on the inside of you. A new heart so that you stop being so stony and cold towards God. And that will be a softer spirit on the inside of you. And uh, that's said to us in Ezekiel, for those of you that know that. Now, we also know that at the Last Supper, Jesus spent some time with his disciples and he said, you know what, in a few days' time, 50 days from now, I'm going to send you a helper, an advocate, somebody who's going to be with you when I'm gone, because because I can't be everywhere at once, but by this helper, you will be able to uh, be kind of very, very close to me, and I'm going to send it to you. So Pentecost is filled with all this prophetic promise And sure enough, 50 days after Jesus is uh, uh, risen again, um, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all these believers and all these things start happening. So this is what happens with prophecy. God says that something's going to happen and he says it in advance and it creates all this expectancy and possibility in our heads and then it does happen and we go, wow, you said that beforehand, God, and then all these changes start happening as a result of what was spoken before. So there's a spoken bit, there's a realization, and then there's an outworking. I think what happens when we see that in God's word is it creates expectancy. It lifts our levels of expectations. When we see that working out in scripture, we go, well, if that can happen then, why not now? Why couldn't that happen now? So I think we also realize that there's a level of transformation that might be possible in God when we see what happens to the, uh, to the believers at Pentecost, that there's this level of change available, of, of, poss- of possibility in God that's coming. So what I want to say to all of us as BCC today is let's recognize that over the next few weeks, we are to have a very high expectancy that God will do something through the Holy Spirit. He will. Receive it, church. He will. And that really big transformation is entirely possible as a result. So hear me again, because it's warm, isn't it? Pinch yourself. Wake up a minute. Hear me again. I'm going to use different words. Listen to this. Recognize that a deepening is happening in BCC right now. A deepening is happening in BCC right now in God. It is. It's happening recognize that a move of God is coming. Open yourselves up. A move of God is on the way. It started and it's on the way. Recognize that we need to be ready for big changes in ourselves and big changes in the people around us as God starts doing transforming works. That's the first thing. Recognize that a move of God is coming in which he will do a transforming work. I have no doubt about that. Now, it is very interesting to me that 3,000 Jews who were added to the 120 believers as followers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost did not become followers of Jesus the moment after the resurrection had happened. That's quite significant. Now, me, 
If the resurrection had happened, I know what I'm like in my spirit. I'd have been like, yeah, what's that? Come on, I want to follow this person. That's an amazing thing. How could that happen? I'd be really open to that right from the off. I just know what I'm like. I, w- I would have been Jesus' follower right there and then. I just would. But that doesn't happen for these 3,000. What happens is they become followers of Jesus, not just because of the truth of the resurrection, but also because of the outpouring of the Spirit in combination. So it's an outpouring thing and it's a fact thing together. So word and spirit come together on the day of Pentecost to cause a revival from within Judaism, which first becomes known as the way, doesn't it? They call it the way at first. And then at Antioch, it gets termed uh, Christian. And we see, we see the birth of Christianity at that point. It's almost like God waits for the foundation of some really extraordinary facts to settle that his son was sent to the earth, went to the cross, rose again. And he needs to let that settle. And then later, 50 days later, he sends the Holy Spirit to complete the work of creating faith in anyone willing to receive it. I want you to notice something else about Peter's talking to the crowd. Nobody in that huge crowd on that day of Pentecost shouts out to Peter as he's speaking. No, you're wrong. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You've got that wrong, Peter. No one says that. Now, bear in mind, that's not a crowd that are following Jesus yet. And if they wanted to have an issue over facts, that would have been a brilliant time to have raised it. And that tells me something incredibly strong, that Jesus definitely rose from the dead. Because there was a prime opportunity to contest that right there, but they didn't do it. No, this, is, this 3,000 is a group of people who are very struck by the truth of the historical case of Jesus rising again from the dead. It's a case that's only 50 days old by the time of Pentecost. And it's a case that keeps on being validated by lots of different witnesses independently. So this 3,000 are also a group of people who are very struck by seeing the effects of a spirit outpouring on the 120 believers who are right there, as Acts tells us so dramatically. What would happen in Birmingham if a whole load of people suddenly saw us filled with the Spirit? What would happen? There would be a move. It would start to just rise up and there would be something incredible happen. I know it. I feel it. So we have an expectancy created by the fulfillment of prophecy, number one. We have the fact of the resurrection, number two. And we have the outpouring of the Spirit, number three, all combining to cause 3,000 people to become followers of Jesus in one day. So what I want to say to you is recognize and be expectant that the Holy Spirit has already been and is touching us and he's deepening us right now as BCC. He is. And on Sunday the 4th of June, seven days from now, recognize and be expectant that Jesus is going to move by his spirit because he's already doing it. In our week of meetings that follows on from that, recognize and be expectant that Jesus will again be moving by his spirit and doing something amazing with us. Jesus can change you radically and he can change the people around you radically. Now, you know what? We are just so delighted when we read that account in Acts 2, aren't we? You know, like, if, we're, if you're a spirit-filled Christian and you're reading Acts 2 and you see the number 3,000 in one day, your heart skips a beat, doesn't it? You're like, yeah, come on! 3,000 in a day, what's that? And like church leaders, that's dream church right there. 
come on, 3,000. We've got, what, 500 in here right now? That's like six times that amount in a day. That would just be awesome. That is kind of just off the scale. We want to see that, don't we? We want to see that, don't we? Yeah? What we can often overlook is the huge personal shift that would have been, that that would have been for those Jews who make the jump to Jesus. Say with me, Jews who make the jump to Jesus. You're struggling with that. Okay. Jews who make the jump to Jesus, there's 3,000 of them. And the reason I'm highlighting this point to you is because if there's huge change available uh, in God to those people, and there was, and I'm going to tell you what those changes were in a second, then there's huge change available to us, isn't there? There can be huge change for us. There's the potential for enormous transformation. Let me tell you briefly some of the things that changed for those Jews that they were willing to let go of and to step into as a result of the day of Pentecost. First of all, those 3,000 were willing to stop the annual animal sacrifice ritual because they started to realize that actually Jesus was their perfect sacrifice. Now, that was a ritual and a pattern they'd carried on since the time of Abraham and Moses. That's a big deal to just bring that to a halt. They're just stopping that because they recognize Jesus is the perfect sacrifice and has come to end all of those sacrifices of animals. Secondly, the Jews, those 3,000, were willing to start receiving Jesus as their personal righteousness. Instead of trying to earn righteousness by sticking religiously to the old Mosaic law. So in in a Jew's mind, what you do is you get closer to God by stepping up and up and up and up in all the rules and regulations and getting kind of perfect in your behavior as much as you possibly could. And then at Pentecost, all of that's brushed aside and it's Jesus that's your personal righteousness and you receive that by faith on the inside of you. And actually, those rules and regulations, yeah, they're still important, but what's really important is that you are righteous because Jesus is in your heart and you've received him by faith. That's a huge shift of perspective, isn't it? Very big difference. Those 3,000 Jews were willing to change the day of the week on which they rested, their Sabbath, from what had been held since pretty much creation when God rested on the seventh day. They were willing to say, do you know what? That tradition we've observed since creation, since Genesis 1 or 2 or whatever it was, we're going to shift that now. We're going to have a different day of the week. We're going to have it on the first day of the week because that's when Jesus rose from the dead. And that's more important now. That is a big mindset change. That's like something so huge happening in BCC here next Tuesday that the global church decide to make the annual day on which we all worship and celebrate a Tuesday. That's how big that is. Do you get where I'm going with that logic? Now, I'm not saying that God will do something like that, although he might. I don't want to put God in a box. But that, for those Jews at that time, that was a massive, massive change. And the reason I'm sharing all these changes and these big, big kind of mind shifts is because if it happened for them on the day of Pentecost and they started on that journey in God, why not us? Why can't we be changed in such a dramatic way as well? The next thing those 3,000 started to embrace was the possibility of instead of just one person of God, that there were three people in God, that God consisted of three persons in one God, that Jesus was actually God, that at his trial, he actually was who he said he was, and that they were wrong to convict him, and that not only that, he, he, he sent the Holy Spirit, and therefore that the Holy Spirit must be a person in his own right. And so three people emerge who are all God, 
who are all persons of God in a doctrine that we now call the Trinity. But that was such a big deal in a Jew's mind, and yet they went with it. They decided to go with it. Lastly, those 3,000 Jews began to switch their understanding from thinking that a Messiah would be a political revolutionary who would come along and free them from the Romans. And what happened was that they changed their thinking and they grasped that the Messiah was somebody who would die for everyone's sins across the whole world and that that would reconnect every person in the world or have the potential to connect every person in the world back with Father God again. That's a very different concept than a revolutionary leader who would come and get rid of the Romans at that time in history. And even Jesus' disciples asked in Acts 1 whether he's going to restore the kingdom, don't they? They kind of say, so when are you going to restore the kingdom, Lord? And he's like, well, I'm not going to talk to you about that. Just wait, and then you're going to get power from the Holy Spirit when he comes. Doesn't kind of answer the question, does he? So it's very different. And what I'm trying to explain to you is that those changes are huge for a Jewish mindset, and yet they were enough. They were enough to make them decide No, Jesus is the real deal. Jesus is the Son of God. I've seen the Spirit, whatever that is, being poured out on these people, and I want to go with that for my life. What what would you be willing to change in your mindset? Are you ready? Are you really ready for God to come and do something outrageous in BCC? Are you ready for that? Listen, if you're sitting there and you've got a, like, hesitancy and a kind of an uncertainty, or like a, well, what's going to happen next? I think that's good. Have it. But let God come anyway. Let God come and do something outrageous in BCC. Why not? Why not us? Why can't it start now? We're always talking about then. Let's, let's start it now. Let's, have a, let's go for it. Let's really open up and let God in. Let him do something truly staggering that takes us from over there to over here because he can do it he absolutely can do it and I think he's doing it now I really do so recognize and be expectant in these weeks that Jesus is already moving and he's doing something by his spirit and recognize there's a level of personal change available to us that is really much bigger than you or I could imagine really big Second thing to recognize, we need to recognize sin for what it is. We just do. Acts 2.37 tells us that as the people heard what Peter had to say about their role in sending the Messiah to the cross, they were what? They were cut to the heart, weren't they? They knew that they'd been kind of complicit in all of what had gone on and that that was what they'd done wrong. We need to recognize sin and we need to be deeply sorry over our sin. I want to paint you a bit of a picture of how sin works. Imagine, just go with me on this, imagine that that God is a beach, like by the sea, okay? And that the water is us, and we're up against God, right at the edge of the shore. And our relationship between God and his people is like the shoreline. And so the beach shapes the water, and the water nudges up against the beach, and when they're touching, God is able to shape the water. The water is fashioned by the beach, isn't it? In a sense. So imagine that uh, as a picture in your mind. Sin, however, works like a riptide that pulls away water from the shore. 
Now, riptides are very, very dangerous, in fact. They, they really exist. I'm not making this up. Um, they cause people to die when they go in the sea every year. People really struggle. In fact, I was at a Bible college with a guy. Uh, he and his son got caught in a riptide near, um, it's kind of up near the Mersey area, kind of out to the coast of, uh, of kind of Liverpool area, Warrington. They went out for the day, and he got caught in a riptide and really, really struggled. They both struggled to get back to shore, and they only just made it. Riptides look like the most appealing and calm part of the water to swim in, but what's really happening is the water is being drawn away. Have a look at these pictures a moment. We'll have a quick look at what a riptide looks like. So up the top there, if you went to the beach, that's your beach eye view of the sea, you might be forgiven for thinking that little bit in the middle there with no uh, kind of white, white, white breakers or surf breaking, you'd be forgiven for thinking, oh, that's the nice calm bit to go and swim in. You'd be wrong. That is the classic sign of a riptide. Because what's happening is all the water that's being dumped on the beach is gathering and finding its way back out to the sea. And so those people there, you can just make them out on the right in that top picture, they actually ended up having to be rescued because they got swept out, uh, out into the distance to the left there. And at the bottom, you can see what happens with riptides is you've got normal surf coming in, and then the water has to find its way back out on those red lines. Sin works exactly like that. If you imagine that God is the beach and we're the water on the edge of the, of the, of the shore, we need to stay close to God, but sin will lure us in and suddenly we'll be swept away from God. Do you get that picture? Yeah? And we have to watch ourselves. And the only way to get out of riptide is you can't fight it. It's too strong. You're going to waste your time. You have to go in another direction. You have to cut across it. And actually, that analogy works as well because if the, the longer you look at sin, the harder it is to fight. You need to look at Jesus. You need to change your gaze and look over here instead and stop trying to navigate the sin. That's what's really going on. Romans 6 tells us that we are equipped by God to avoid sin altogether, in fact, and that we can swim sideways towards Jesus if we start getting caught in sin. And as Peter addresses the crowd, and they are convicted of their sin, and they ask what to do, and Peter says this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of what? Your sins. You need to be uh, repenting of your sins. So if there's any sin in your life, BCC, Confess it up to Jesus. Ask for forgiveness. Get yourself right with God. Reconnect yourself with Father God. And that is going to give us great preparation space for God to move in these next few weeks. If we're ladled with sin as we go into this time, I'm not so sure God is going to be as free as he might have been to move. And I'm not happy with my... If I was part of that, I'd just be mortified before God if I was doing something that stopped that happening. Don't know about you, but I want to be as clean as a whistle before God that there's nothing going on with me that would stop him moving. I would never forgive myself. Well, I would. I'd get there in the end. But, like, I just don't want anything to get in the way of what's coming because I think something's coming. I do. I think something's coming, and I don't want to be wrong with God at all. So get right with God. George is going to come in just a moment, and he's going to take over from me, and he's going to talk about three ways that we can respond to the Spirit. But, but there's one more thing I want to draw your attention to, one last piece of the, of the puzzle, if you like, about preparation. Notice how that in Acts chapter 1, there's a hole left by what Judas has done. He's committed the most profound moral betrayal, hasn't he? And there's a hole left in the structure of that group of people. He's missing. 
his role of leadership. I guess he used to look after the money or whatever. That's all stopped. He's not there anymore. He met his demise. And so there's a problem. There's a structural problem. There's an issue. What Peter does is he stands up and he says, no, I think we need to fix this. And I don't think we should overlook the significance of that. This isn't just about church governance or leadership. I think it's a call for all of us to take an inventory of our lives, look around our areas of influence and involvement, and to begin tackling things that are not as they should be. We need to do that prayerfully and wisely. But I'm describing a need for godly orderliness in our approach to next week. We need to start that process off. Now, some of the things I'm going to suggest, you're not going to fix them by next week, but it'd be great if you started thinking about fixing them and putting them in order. Because those guys at the beginning of Acts did something structural. They looked at the the issues they faced. They dealt with it, and they sorted it out. And in fact, George is going to tell us some of the characteristics of how they did that, and that's another part of the message. 1 Corinthians 14.40 says that everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. That's what I'm talking about. So for you and I, this is what this means. It could be that you need to take some steps to deal with the outcomes of someone else's sin. Somebody's grieved you wrongly. There's been an injustice against you. Maybe you need to do some forgiving. Maybe you need to sort out some, a residency visa, for instance. That's just been hanging over you forever, and it's time to fix that. That's the kind of thing I mean. It could be that actually, you know what, you're not married, but you've been cohabiting. And yes, that is a sin, but more importantly, let's get that right. Let's put that in order. Start the process of events to start getting your life in an orderly fashion before God. It could be for you that that's signing off some really important papers and you've just not done it. Perhaps it's something in your workplace that needs to be made right. Perhaps it's something you need to address that you know you haven't faced for a very long time. It could be steps to a reconciliation process. It might be that you've decided to drop a court case now because you're running with a court case forever and it's killing you and it's not godly now. And you just say, do you know what? I'm just giving that to God. Maybe it's not even dealing with something particularly messy, but you've just put it off forever. And God's been saying to you, hey, go and learn to drive because it's going to help you with your job. Whatever it might be for us, Peter models something we shouldn't overlook. You know, we can get kind of hypey about the spirit, can't we? But I think there's a structural orderliness thing going on here. And that is a call to us to tackle stuff properly. And that's what I think we should be doing. Trust the spirit to prompt you about what that is for you, as he did for that early group of believers. So, George, I'm just going to ask you to come and take over from me. But recognize three things. Recognize that a move of God is coming in which he's going to do a transforming work. Recognize sin for what it is. And recognize the need to get things in order. Thanks, George. So when Nick and I were planning, um, planning the talk, we realized that the best preparation for Pentecost was to recognize and respond to the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to look at three, uh, well, two ways that the disciples um, responded um, to the Holy Spirit and actually how we can then respond. So do you want to open your Bibles? Maybe shake. I'm, not, I'm going to be brief, so let's just keep, keep awake in this hot, hot temperature. Open your Bibles to Acts 1. And I'm going to read um, from verse 12. Verses 1 to 11, um, Jesus said to the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come. And then he was taken up to heaven. And we're going to take on from verse 12. So Acts 1, verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. When they arrived, they went up to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. 
Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, uh, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. As Brits, we love to queue, don't we? You know, we'll see a queue and you think, oh, actually, I'm going to get in that. Might be something good. You know, but we also have lots of different rules, you know. There's like unwritten rules about queuing in Britain that, you'll, that you won't find anywhere. For example, you know when you're in Tesco and there's a long line and you're sort of waiting to do your check out your groceries and then a, a lady or someone on the next till opens up a new till. Woe be to the person at the back of the queue who goes there first. You have to let the person at the front, you know. That, that is one of the unwritten rules. There's also a faux pas about queue jumping, you know. We'll be standing in line maybe for the cash point or something. And if some person will come in, come in and sort of jump the queue, as Brits, we generally just sort of tut and say, you know, sort of immoral person, you know. But actually, there'll occasionally be this sort of hero who will step in and say, what are you doing? Queue jumping. Even if that person doesn't repent, you know, doesn't say, okay, I'll join the back of the queue, the person who confronted them is deemed a hero by the rest of the queue. You know, we sort of, well, well done. We love queuing. Actually, when we were at um, B1, had a trip to Alton Towers yesterday, and we spent about 10 minutes in one line for a ride discussing the protocol of queuing. There's even signs there discuss- telling you how to queue properly. We love to queue, but we hate to wait, don't we? There's people here, we're all here, maybe waiting on something, and we hate it. You know, it could be waiting just to open presents on your birthday. It could be waiting for a mortgage approval, that job offer. It could be waiting for medical results. Waiting is hard. Waiting is hard. Here in Acts 1, we read that the disciples are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. So let's have a look at Acts 1 and how they waited and how we can learn from them how to wait well. Acts chapter 1, verse 14 says, They all met together and were constantly united in prayer. We often think of waiting as being passive, you know? I've spoken to some people and they say, oh, you know, I'm waiting on for God for that. But they're not praying. They just sort of think, oh, it'll happen eventually. You know, here we see the disciples were constantly united in prayer. They were steadfast, devoted, and continuing in prayer. You see, waiting is active. Waiting is intentional. It's not a passive thing that goes on. No wonder we actually hate waiting, because we just think, oh, we'll sit around and wait for it to happen. No, waiting is active. Waiting is communion with God. And I want to challenge you this morning. Don't waste your wait, BCC. Our waiting should be praying for two reasons. One, prayer changes things, you know? If you don't believe it, try praying. The situation will change if we pray into it. But two, praying changes you. As you're waiting for something and you're praying for it, God will work in your heart and start refining you. If God is making you wait... He's working in you and working on you and working the situation. You might not yet be ready for the answer to that prayer. We can see the disciples here, through this wait, they were finally in unity. Just a few weeks earlier, at the, the Last Supper, you know, when um, Jesus took the bread and the wine, just after that, the disciples just got in an argument about who was the greatest. This was the Last Supper. We see it. We talk about it. And they were arguing about who's the greatest. But now we see 
after 40 days of waiting, active waiting, praying, verse 14 says, they all met together and were constantly united in prayer. They had to wait. They wouldn't have been ready if they weren't waiting. They needed to be filled and they needed to be refined. Think about it when you board a plane, you know? If it touches down, they eagerly run on and say, let's go. It's not a time to fuel or anything. It's irresponsible. You want to wait for actually the right things, the right steps to go. Don't waste your wait. Be active in prayer. That's why we're meeting together as Pentecost people on the Wednesday nights before Pentecost. We believe that we need to be united in prayer if we want to see the Holy Spirit come in power. But also, our weekend meetings after Pentecost is about waiting on God. You know, Pentecostalism, it was born in the tarrying, the, the waiting, the tarrying up a room that we saw the disciples doing, but also in the waiting of the church. Now, people said tarrying to me, and I, I don't know what that term means. You know, that's like a new, that's a King James version. I'm more of a New Living Translation guy. So I didn't know what tarrying meant. So I, I asked Google, and Google knew. The definition of tarrying is to stay longer than intended, to de- delay leaving a place. How do you feel about that? Are we willing to wait well? Are we willing to stay longer than intended if you want God to show up? You know, are you willing to stay and seek and, and see God move so eager that you don't mind your chicken burning at home? We need to delay leaving a place if we want to see God move. We need to seek him fully in our hearts. See, in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Paul writes about Jesus after his resurrection. Paul says he was seen by more than 500 um, followers at one time. But we, we read in Acts 1.15 that there were 120 people waiting there. You see, waiting well means waiting until God moves. It's not showing up, having a look, see what God's doing, thinking, actually, I'll wait till it happens. It's actually seeing it through. Out of the 500 who saw Jesus after his resurrection, only 120 waited well. BCC, let's wait in prayer. Let's be in that 120. But waiting is also obedience. You know, just before Jesus ascends into heaven, um, Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then we read in verse 12 that the apostles returned to Jerusalem for the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. If Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem, you wait in Jerusalem. You know, they could have thought, actually, no, I'm going to do a bit of fishing, and then when the Holy Spirit comes, then I'll, I'll get going. But it's simple. Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem, you wait in Jerusalem. If Jesus says to us as church, wait in prayer for him to come, what are we doing if we're not waiting in prayer? We have to be obedient. Waiting is obedience. So we need to respond by waiting well and waiting in obedience. But we also need to respond by keeping humble in our hearts. Are there any tennis fans in the house? Anyone excited for Wimbledon? Absolutely no one. One little wave in the middle. It's going to be great. Did you know that 30 tons of strawberries are sold over the Wimbledon fortnight? They're probably really expensive too. Anyway, if you want to go to Wimbledon, it attracts all sorts of people from all over the globe. You know, there's the cheap seats that aren't really cheap at all. But that's where you and I would sit if we wanted to, you know, go. Then there's the expensive seats where, you know, like David Beckham and his strangely named children will sit. And there's, there's some seats where actually you can't buy. There's some seats that it, they're not for sale, but even, no matter how much money you have, you cannot sit there. 
They're reserved for mothers and spouses. You know, you see Andy Murray's terrifying mum just sitting there in that seat, you know, or the Williams sisters' mum sitting there. They get motherly privileges. But this isn't the case amongst the believers at Pentecost. Look at Acts 1.14. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. She could have expected different seats, different privileges and surroundings, claiming, you know, I'm, I'm his mother. But she just tarried in the upper room with the rest of them. She kept her heart humble, because humility is the key. If we're lifting ourselves up, we're robbing God of his glory. It's about coming less so that Jesus can become greater. John the Baptist got this right. He got it right. No wonder that Jesus called him the greatest man who walked the earth. John 3, 16 to 30 says, John's disciples came to John and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people. And everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you. I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy and success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Is that our life's direction and motto? Do we believe that, that Jesus must become greater and greater, and we must become less and less? The disciples finally got this. They stopped arguing about who was the greatest. Through this weight, this, this build-up to Pentecost, they realigned their focus. They realigned their hearts. With Jesus as the priority and not them, the Holy Spirit could come in power and do great works. Let's go back to Acts 1. This is Peter speaking in verse 21. He says, So you must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us in the entire time we were traveling with the Lord. From the time he baptized by John until the time he was taken away from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justus, and Matthias. Then they all prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry, for he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. They cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other eleven. Here are two guys who did the right thing. They saw the right things. They, they, they knew Jesus. They were upstanding men, suitable for be counting as one of the twelve. Yet Matthias got the nod, and he's been in every church stained glass window ever since. And Justice? Who knows? I love Justice. I think Justice is great, because he's just like us. You know, we don't get the opportunity to be part of the twelve. We don't get the opportunity to be in stained glass windows. But like us, Justice got the opportunity to do God's works without all the recognition and celebration. There's a writer called Bob Goff, and he, descri- he describes Justice as being secretly awesome. And he challenges us to be the same. You see, secretly awesome people aren't too busy updating their statuses about all the great things they're doing. So they have time to break a hole in the ceiling and lower their friend down at the feet of Jesus. Secretly awesome people aren't oppressed press responses and everything because they are actually busy making a packed lunch to take to Jesus so he can feed 5,000. Do we know that boy's name? Do we know the four friends' name? That's the point. They were secretly awesome. We can be like that too. We can be like justice. You know, if if you're busy being recognized, you've got no time to be awesome. God is looking for humble hearts. 
People he can work through who won't try and take his credit and make themselves famous. You want to do great things for the kingdom of God? You want to be filled with this, uh, the Holy Spirit in power and equipped for his glory? Then be like John the Baptist. May he become greater and greater. Me become less and less. The best preparation for Pentecost, the best response for a person to the Holy Spirit is to wait well and have a humble heart. We must have the same attitude as Christ Jesus had. Because though he was not God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him the name that is above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I want to invite the worship band to come and join us. Actually, I want to invite you guys to stand. Why don't you stand with me? In Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, we see three responses. And that's how we can respond today. The believers, when filled with the Spirit, they began to speak in many native languages of those in the city. Loads of people gathered, and they could speak to them in their own language. So they could share the, the gospel and the glory of Jesus. And we are friends and family all over this city, in many different lines of work, in many different backgrounds. And we have friends and family who don't know Jesus. So I'm going to get you guys to do something today. Take out your phones and open your messages. Do it now. Take out your phones and open up your messages. You don't have to pretend you're on the Bible app. You can actually open your messages. And write a new message. Don't put anyone in the sending box yet. Just start writing the message now. And write this. Hey, I'm currently in church and I'm thinking about you. Fancy getting a drink this week? Right, hey, I'm currently in church and thinking about you. Fancy getting a drink this week? And then send it to who you're thinking about right now. Do it, I challenge you. And then go and meet up with that person this week and have a conversation. Just love them. See what God does. Pray for an opportunity. The second response we see was when Peter preached and 3,000 people came to faith. Like Nick said, these people had seen the resurrection of Jesus, they'd seen Jesus move. At this point, they finally got it. They finally got it. And they think, yeah, actually, I want to believe. You might have come to church many times in your life. But it might just be twigging. You might just think, actually, I get this now. You might have never come to church before, but you think, actually, no, I want some of this. I'd love to speak with you and have a chat with you. Maybe after the service, you can grab me and we can, I can pray with you or something. We can get to know one another. The third and final response was baptism. Baptism in water and baptism in the Holy Spirit. Baptism in water signifies the death of the old life and the beginning of the new life. You know, it's an outward confirmation of the forgiveness of sin and acceptance of Jesus. So if you want to be baptized, if you want to make that step, why don't you head down to the info point after the service? We've got some classes coming up in the next few weeks. I'm going to get you baptized. We'd love to do that with you. But also, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're told as believers to continue to seek to be filled with the Spirit, to equip us for the Lord's work. We want to be equipped for the Lord's work, don't we? So I'm going to invite you in in a few minutes just to come forward. 
If you want to be filled with the Spirit, if you want to actually say, yeah, I want more of that. I want you to work in me and work in me and prepare and refine me so that when the Holy Spirit's come, I can actually give you the most glory, Lord. So why don't you start coming forward and say, yes, actually, I want to be refined. I want to be filled. We're going to start seeing, but why don't you join us?